Welcome to episode five of the Various and Sundry podcast. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio as always by my good friend, my teammate here at Grace College and Theological <laughs> Seminary, the one, the only, John Sloat. Matthew Scott, what's happening? Well, we are now on the uh, the Tuesday after the Super Bowl. It's always a, a fun thing that we will obviously talk about. Yeah, we'll in get into that today. a little bit. But uh, first, we uh, we want to encourage people to uh, reach out and connect with us on Twitter uh, at at v and s pod, mm-hmm. and then uh, people can also email us at various and sundry podcast. That's all one word with no punctuation at gmail.com. And in fact, we had a listener email that we at least wanted to uh, mention briefly. Yeah, and who who sent that email in? Uh, that was from Chris in Indiana. Okay, yeah, Chris from the uh, from from the home state here. That's right. That's right. And uh, we won't read the 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 text of the email, but basically he uh, asked for uh, some suggestions for primary source materials from our discussion of church history from the previous episode. Uh, he noted that we talked, we mentioned several books, but none of them were like direct primary source materials, like if you want to read direct documents from church history. So uh, I don't know if you had any suggestions when it comes to that area that we can recommend for our listeners. Yeah, uh, really, um, I I do recommend Augustine's works. So Mm -hmm. City of God, it's quite thick. I think Confessions is a much more readable book. That's probably an easier place to start than City of God, yeah. Yeah, uh, although City of God is quite quite good. I'm, I'm reading through it currently. It's been... An adventure, but it's a commitment. It's a com- it's a big. Co- it's like a two year commitment um, for me. Yeah, uh, but other than that, I, I often find uh, primary sources difficult to read, particularly if you're a lay person. If mm-hmm. you're just uh, a guy in the pew or a woman in the pew trying trying to work your way through church history, uh, I might recommend some other uh, uh, books as well. I, I w- one that came to mind, uh, a classic. Uh, Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green. Yeah, that's uh, good. Is one that I've I've used in my own church history course mm-hmm. as as, uh, as I'm prepping for lectures and those sorts of things. And, and I, I believe you have a couple as well. Yeah. So I think uh, I know this was used as a textbook in my own church history coursework as a seminary student. But there's a book called Documents of the Christian Church that's edited by uh, Henry Bettinson and Chris Maunder. I think is how you say his name. And basically, they give uh, snippets, selections from uh, key writings from the early church, which can be super helpful. Uh, and then the, uh, I think actually they go beyond the early church, beyond that into, I think, up at least close to the Reformation period, if not into the Reformation period. The second one is a three-volume collection edited by William Jurgens called Faith of the Early Fathers mm. that has uh, snippets from uh, the early church fathers on different subjects, and so that's a good way if you're interested in what do the early church fathers think about a particular area. There's very good indexing and titling and 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 such that it makes it easy for you to jump into that and and track that down. And then I also think uh, because so much of the writing is so old that, it, that it's no longer copyrighted or anything like that. They're just available on the internet. Now you got to exactly. you got to make sure you get a good source when you do that. But sure. you can Google and find quite a quite a bit of early church writings. Yeah. So, uh thanks to Chris for for checking in here in the home state and uh if if you have some feedback or uh some questions for us that uh you'd like for us to address on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So, uh again, you can reach out to us 
variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. But uh, since we are on the Tuesday after the Super Bowl, uh, it's only appropriate for us to talk about We'll start with the game first, and then we'll move on to other aspects connected with the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, uh, the game was—it was a good game. It, yeah. was, it was an enjoyable game. Yeah, uh, it was a close game. It was—it had drama, some intrigue. Uh, the Chiefs came back from down ten uh, in the fourth quarter with, I believe, seven minutes to go. I think it was right. Yeah, maybe maybe a few more minutes than that, but they were down ten. Almost, you know, two third or a third and a half of the way through the fourth quarter. So yeah, and and came back and won, and won by eleven. Won by eleven. Yes, you know, it, which was, from what I understand, I think it was their third consecutive postseason game where they trailed by at least ten points and then won by ten or more points, which has never been done before in the history of of the NFL. Yeah. Well, I think we watched that Houston Texans Chiefs game early in the playoffs. Yeah. They were down 24 in the first quarter. The Titans, obviously. Um, and that, were, were they down 10 then or 17? I mean, 17, 17 I think so. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I think it's, I think that Chiefs defense stepped up in each of the second halves of those games and, and yes. really put a lockdown on. That's right. On those teams. Right. And I think that what it also shows is the fact that you in today's NFL, if you have a superstar quarterback, you're never out of a game. Yeah. At least it feels that way. And with someone like Patrick Mahomes, it's clear that they can be down a lot. And with Mahomes plus his skill uh, and speed on the edges with the receivers and uh, Kelsey as the tight end, uh, they are they they are a nuclear explosion waiting to happen on offense. That just any moment they could break out and score twenty one points in seven minutes. Yeah, they started calling them the Legion of Zoom. Did you hear that? <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, so the old uh, uh, Seahawks secondary was known mm-hmm. as the Legion of Boom uh, okay. because they hit people, did, did sure. all these things. They called these guys the Legion of Zoom because they were so fast. Okay, okay. So I think uh, one of the things that also struck me is the fact that. Uh, in light of my rooting interests, uh, Nick Bosa on the 49ers had a good game, and yeah. uh, he is—he's just a beast to block. And uh, but at the end of the day, it seemed like the difference ended up being uh, the difference at quarterback. Garoppolo could not produce when it mattered in the fourth quarter, and those were some of the questions coming into the game: were could Garoppolo, if necessary, put the team on his back? and lead the team to score in crunch time if necessary. And apparently, we found the answer, at least for this game, was he couldn't. Well, And uh, I, I think there's some play-calling issues there on the 49ers as well. Uh, there was a—they uh, were up 10. They had the ball. It was the fourth quarter. They ran the ball on first down and got five yards. Uh, the next two plays, they threw the ball. Mm-hmm. Big mistake. Yeah. Um, and ended up punting away. Patrick Mahomes went down the field and scored a touchdown. Uh, they, they needed to run the ball a bit more in that, in that fourth quarter to really start sucking time off the clock. And, and I, I think in part, I, I, I totally agree that uh, Jimmy G did, could, not, could not pull it off. Right. Uh, but I think there was some poor play calling there as well. Yeah, which is ironic when you think about the fact that part of what Kyle Shanahan is known for 
was the fact that he was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons when they blew a 28-3 lead over the Patriots in the Super Bowl that would have been three years ago? Yeah, just a few years ago, yeah. And so uh, for the second, you know, his second appearance in the Super Bowl as a coach, this time as the head coach, there's, again, questions about play calling and strategy and that sort of stuff. So just interesting that, yeah, you know, here we are three years later, and although he wasn't the head coach of the Falcons at that point, there were play calling issues in that game that people have suggested that if they had done some things differently, they could have held on to that lead rather than blown it. And this, it was a good Super Bowl. It was an excellent game. It was fun to watch. It did lack a signature play. Like, I don't think of any individual play that I go to that I'm like, that defined the game. Well, I think maybe uh, maybe the Chiefs play down on the goal line where they did the, uh, the, the choreographed dance move yes. and then the direct snap to the running back for the, for and the first And that was based down. on like a, a Rose Bowl play from the 1940s? <laughs> yes. uh, I read 70s, somewhere. 70s, I think. Was that, it 70s? I think 40s is too okay. far back. But 70s is still a ways back, which... That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there was a bit of controversy with, controversy with the uh, officiating. End of the first half, George Kittle, their uh, all-world tight end, gets loose downfield, pushes off just a little at least with his uh, off arm to create space to catch the ball, flagged for offensive pass interference. If that play had stood, 49ers almost certainly would have scored at least three uh, to, to go into the halftime up 13-10 instead of down, or instead of tied 10-10. And so, you know, there was the controversy of, was that really pass interference? Was it dramatic enough? And of course, you know, 49ers fans are losing their minds over this. And sure. Vikings fans are, are like, um, I'm sorry, Saints fans are like, um, excuse me, uh, <laughs> did you not see the play at the end of our playoff game a few weeks ago where... Basically, you had the same level of push-off and no call yeah. on the on the game-winning touchdown. So, I, those were both first-half plays, though. There was no signature second-half play that led to one team winning. Uh, there was the beating of Richard Sherman in the end zone, sort of, and. Well, you might be able to argue the third and fifteen conversion where Patrick Holmes threw it deep to Sammy Watkins. Um, the ball was underthrown a little bit, but that was like a. 40 or 50 yard play that if that if they don't convert on that they're punting it back they're still down 10 i think at that point in the fourth quarter yeah i was going to leave my super bowl party if they didn't convert that third down that was a big down third down play but i i can tell you that he caught the ball he, he got the first down but i can't say oh my goodness it was one-handed catch you know sure. towing the, the sidelines or anything it's not going to be on a visa commercial in the coming years <laughs> you know okay uh, and i think that's what i was looking for i, I was see. looking for that signature play that, yeah. I, that i just didn't see yeah so uh also connected with the super bowl obviously we have commercials which for Love some the commercials some people are it, those are even more exciting to them than uh, than what the game itself is. And sometimes they're better than the game itself. Sometimes. Not this year. Not this year. Uh, I think that when it comes to the commercials, to me it feels like there's been a downward trend over the past probably three to four years of just the quality and the number of commercials. You're like, oh, that was really good, or I really liked that, or that was funny or entertaining. So... Uh, We'll start with you. Were, were there any commercials that stood out to you? Um, well, two. Um, the first one is the Google commercial with 
the the individual having uh, struggling to remember his wife that you kind of can piece together has passed away, mm-hmm. and he's struggling. I, 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 what is communicated, or at least what I heard, was some kind of dementia he's really struggling with. Yeah, and so he's having Google remind him about his wife and all these things. Yeah, that was a that's a that's a tearjerker right there. And I get the commercial, and, and I had the feels, you know. <laughs> However, that's not what I'm looking for in a Super Bowl commercial. Like, I don't want this wide range. You know, I want to laugh. Mm-hmm. I want to enjoy myself. I, I don't want to be like, all right, I, you know, I, I think I need to call my grandpa. You know, or say, you know, it says something like that. I'm, I'm not looking for those sort of sort okay. of feelings moments. I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking to laugh. And right. So that was, that was, it was a good commercial. It was tear jerking, but I'm looking to laugh. Okay. Okay. So you, you just want to rule out the sort of heartwarming not heartwarming but the go for the jugular when it comes to to jerking the tears yeah in in my mind the greatest super bowl commercial of all time was when the spaceship comes down and the goodness i'm trying to remember the alien walks out and just says what's up to to the to the people i think it was i can't even remember was it a mountain dew it might have been a bud light commercial i can't remember but i remember being a kid and being like that's hysterical and and uh dying that's the pinnacle for okay. me okay well and the other commercial i think that stood out to us uh in part because of what we do yeah since we are both uh <laughs> greek instructors greek professors was the new york life commercial that based their entire one minute commercial on four different greek words for love the last thing i was expecting to see at the super bowl was greek letters on the on the on yeah. the screen yeah yeah so uh when it comes to that one of the first things that struck me as that commercial started was was my thought of they're totally ripping off c.s lewis here. yeah and they did not cite their source <laughs> they did not cite c.s lewis yes and so um that was the first thing like wait a minute four loves i mean it, 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 among our people, so to mm-hmm. speak, it's like, well, duh, C.S. Lewis. That, C.S. Lewis has a book called that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so um, I think, too, that, uh, you know, it, it's somewhat of an illustration of something we talk about in Greek class of of a sort of uh, kind of a word fallacy there of in, investing these individual words with all of this meaning when meaning is contextual and uh, it's not like in ancient Greek, those distinctions are always so tightly adhered to and, and such. But, you know, I, I guess as a, as a Greek professor, I shouldn't complain. They're actually, you know, talking about Greek. <laughs> yeah, we're relevant. You know, we're <laughs> exactly. Super Bowl relevant. That's right. That's yeah. What we do here at Grace <laughs> College at Theological Seminary can prepare you for a, for a position at a major marketing firm mm-hmm. in order to produce a Super Bowl commercial. That's right. We should put that on the in the uh, marketing for our uh, blended program, or at least the syllabus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, well, I, I, you got anything else on the on the commercial thing? I don't. Uh, there was one with Rain Wilson who played Dwight in the Office that that was very funny, but I can't even remember the company. But I remember laughing. But that was one of the few I laughed at. I, I'll be honest; I just didn't pay a lot of attention to the commercials. Um, I, those two did catch my attention that we talked about, but I, I just get to the point where uh, I feel like, like I said, that the, the quality has gone down, and there's also, again, it feels like 
there's such a uh, culture now of not wanting to say something or do something that is overtly political, except for unless you're going to buy a political ad, which I think didn't. I think Trump actually had a political ad. Trump somewhere and uh, Mike Bloomberg, yeah, both they, had political ads. <laughs> our, our, our and re- they love each other. Our, our so. resident billionaires. Yeah. So, um, in any case, uh, when it comes to our our main topic for today, uh, as we as we talked about this, this is an area that. Uh, We've had multiple conversations about, yeah, and we've so had a lot of conversations about I think this. this is something that uh, we wanted to sort of take public in one sense uh, by talking about this whole area of singleness. Mm-hmm. And I know this has been uh, an area that you have done uh, a lot of thinking about, a lot of reflecting on, a lot of reading about, and uh, obviously uh, some of your own personal experience informs uh your thinking and in your and your your views on this. So, um, I don't know where you necessarily want to start with. Yeah, this topic. yeah. I th- I think it's important to nail down our own context here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if wherever you're listening, we're in Central Indiana, uh, North Central Indiana, and uh, we are at a, a liberal arts Christian college um, that we both love working at. And we both we both really mm-hmm. enjoy. Um, you have been married since the age of, let's see, I was 22, got married in 96, hadn't turned, yeah, so I was 22. Okay, and I am uh, currently 31 and and unmarried, although that's changing, uh, gosh, four months. Uh, So that's changing uh, here. Three, almost. We're we're just starting February. You're not going to count that? No, we're counting February as a month. <laughs> okay. Hold on. Okay. Um, but, uh, and and the Christian college we work at, which I think is par for the course for most liberal arts Christian colleges, is students tend to get married at 21, 22, 23, while the national average seems to tick more towards 30 uh, for yeah, marriage. Yeah, that's right. And I, I'm sure this isn't necessarily unique to Grace, but there's even a sort of a comical saying that floats around campus, the ring by spring, the, mm-hmm. the idea of by the time you are uh, in spring of your last year here at school, there's sort of the, uh, maybe not expectation is strong, but a, certainly a sort of, um, I don't know, what, what would you say? Not expectation. There's but, a pressure. Yeah, maybe um, some at least subtle pressure. And there, there's a there's even a bit of a pressure to, to sort of couple up with, oh my goodness, we're part of the same friend group, we're both single. Maybe it'll work, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and to, to sort of step into that. Um, sure. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's the most healthy uh, uh, culture that we have. I think there are worse cultures we could certainly have. I think a caveat we want to put out there is is that we do believe marriage is a good thing, mm-hmm. um, that it is something ordained by God to, to be something that is good for human existence sure. uh, and good for society as yeah. well. Um, you know, I, I was just thumbing through some of my singleness books as I was coming in here. And one of them says, one of them says like the church treats singleness, like it's the foundation of Western society. And I was like, it's very important. For, you mean for, mar- treats marriage like it's the foundation of, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah. It treats marriage okay. like it's the foundation of Western society. And I was good. It's, it's an important, it's a very mm-hmm. important piece of society. Like, like, like it is a good thing for society. I think where we get ourselves in trouble, it's not an, ultimate thing for society. 
Yeah, and I think that when I <clears throat> when I think about this area, at least incidentally, it it connects with one of my uh, I don't know, hobby horses or, or soapboxes. But I would argue that uh, marriage slash family is one of the two most acceptable forms of idolatry in the evangelical church. Absolutely. The other one is ministry. Mm-hmm. But marriage and family is one of the most acceptable forms of idolatry. That, And what I mean by that is you can talk about and pursue marriage and family in such a way that you are making it an ultimate thing, like you're describing, mm-hmm. in the context of evangelical churches, and it's unlikely that people will call you out on it or acknowledge it as that's not good. That's actually sinful. You're taking something that's a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, which is one of the definitions of idolatry. Mm-hmm. I, I would say it's a pretty major blind spot uh, that churches, particularly in contexts context like ours, mm-hmm. Midwest, yeah. uh, conservative, uh, uh, evangelical to the core, yeah. uh, people tend, tend to look at marriage and say, this is for everybody. This is for mm-hmm. everybody, and it's for everybody now. And I think there can be a tendency to look at singles in the church, and as they get older, to begin to subtly wonder, well, what's wrong with them if they're not married by, I don't know, pick an age, pick... 25, pick 27, pick yeah. 30. Like, well, what's wrong with that person? That, that there seems to be, it may not be spoken, but this sort of uh, unstated but kind of assumption of, well, there must be something. They seem like a great person, but there must be something that I don't know about or that's just kind of off about them that, me, that, that, that is the reason why they have not gotten married yet. And I think that's particularly true uh, for for more than for for more women than men. Like I, I think men get some of that pressure, but I think women get that pressure a lot more than men do. I agree, I uh, agree. So I think that uh, when you when you reflect on this area of singleness, what are some of the reasons that you think that uh, it seems like culturally, and even I think some of this. It seems like there is this tendency, even in our evangelical circles, that either it's get married very early, yeah, like in college even, or like right after college, or the other, uh, maybe not extreme, but the other end of that spectrum is that there there's a growing number of singles in our evangelical churches who are single into their late 20s and into their 30s. Mm-hmm. So... I'm curious if you have ideas as to maybe why that is. I mean, obviously, at some level, it's the sovereignty of God. Okay, right. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe he orchestrates things in his timing. But I I think it's fair for us to look at, are there cultural trends? Are there theological trends? Are there you know economic trends? Are there societal trends that are contributing to these dynamics? Yeah, and that's a big question and probably has a million answers. And I only have my, my own experience and sort of half-baked guesses to, to make. But you've done reading in this area I, as I ha- well. I have so done some reading. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone's going to hold you to the scientific standard of I can cite uh, journal articles that have uh, you know 
peer-reviewed blind studies of <laughs> of the numbers. Sure. I, and like we already said, I, I do think it is culturally more acceptable to be uh, single longer, um, yes. which which a generation ago I don't I don't think was the case. Right. Um, so that I think, and in particular, I'd say for women and women that, in particular, that yes. as as society has changed and it's become more common for women to work and to work outside the home and to uh, support themselves, that there's less of the perception, especially if I think from a woman's perspective of. If I don't get married, I'm not sure how I'm going to provide for myself. Like I, you know, mm-hmm. I, that that is, I think, in many respects, not the case anymore. Yeah, and, and I think there's more of a focus on career as well, mm-hmm. and I think that's more available to women than it was a generation ago. Agreed. Yeah, uh, and so and so I think there's some people that are like, that go to work and like, oh my goodness, I really enjoy this. I, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to step away from this yet. Right. And and uh, start the, start the family. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, and then I think, I think, goodness, some of our cultural icons or some, some art, um, if I can call friends art, uh, that was formative for, for millennials was, if if you think of the TV show Friends, you know, you have Mm -hmm. these, uh, six people who are all single Mm -hmm. for a majority of the show, uh, who, uh, who really thrive in life and are, and are really like one's a PhD, one makes their way uh, in the business world. You know, they, they all got these different things. One's a famous chef, you know, all these things that are going on. And I think there's, even though I don't think we would speak this, I think there's a part of us that looks at that and goes, that sounds really nice. And mm-hmm. I think, I think um, another thing that I think I'll use friends to illustrate was I think millennials have looked at previous generations and seen uh, that rushing into a relationship or re- rushing into marriage particularly can have devastating effects. I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the divorce rate and, and those different things. And uh, uh, Friends, to illustrate this, Friends begins with one of the main characters slipping out the the window of the bathroom at her wedding. Right. Escaping, coming to uh, you know the coffee shop in, in New York City. Uh, and being with this new family, this group of friends, yeah. uh, and a few episodes in, uh, her mom comes to talk to her and is, is talking about how proud she is of her, how, how um, independent she is, and just kind of looking at her like, why, why, are you, why are you saying this? Well, because I wanted the same thing, but I went through with the wedding. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that illustrates that, that millennials that are, that are still singles have in some sense looked at at past generations at, at the baby boomers and seen, goodness, this, this was not good for the woman. Mm-hmm. This was not good for the man. This led to divorce and brokenness and broken families and yeah. struggles for, uh, children. Um, and so they, they've kind of said, I'm going to hold off on this and I want to be certain. Right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely, uh, a factor in this whole, uh, conversation. You know, as I thought about this area, uh, I remembered a, a New York Times article that I read about, and I forget his name now, but uh, the guy who coined the expression FOMO, fear of missing out, mm-hmm. also coined the expression FOBO, fear of better options. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of it. And so yes. that came to mind as I was thinking about this topic of singleness that I do wonder that at least 
part, th- this this informs part of the discussion. I think I'm not saying it's the exclusive, you know, explanation, sure. but I do think one of the characteristics of both uh, millennials and even particular Gen Z that's coming after them. I think it's even more pronounced in Gen Z is there is a fear of locking in and saying, okay, I'm going to go with this in part because there's this fear of what if a better option comes along? And I see it in, in simple ways, not far, far less life defining situations like, um, even college students are later making plans for the weekend. That's like three days away. So you come into this, well, um, and the very noncommittal. Why? Oftentimes because there's like, well, I want to wait till the last minute in the event that a better option comes along. And if I commit to that, I might miss out on something better that's coming along. And I do think that there can, there can be a dynamic of that in the, in the dating and uh, sort of uh, pre-marriage process of, well, I want to keep my options open in the event that someone even better comes along and there can be a fear of locking in to, well, if I lock into a lifetime commitment with this particular person, what if six months later I meet someone that I, in one sense, click with even better? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think uh, dating apps and those sorts of things have only heightened that because it seems, it, it can seem for the millennial almost endless amounts of options. So I, I think that's absolutely true. Right. So let's think uh, maybe specifically about how can the church minister better to singles? Maybe we need to ask the question first of what are some of the common mistakes that churches make in yeah. trying to uh, minister to, care for, incorporate into the bo- life of the body uh, this this demographic in their midst of singles, and in particular, probably thinking of sort of mostly post probably post college or like college age up into realistically probably into the thirties. Yeah, would you think is because I think typically once you get past the thirties, the number of people who are single who've maybe never been married before uh, is not very high. Typically, typically, yeah. Um, so what are some of the mistakes that maybe you, you've seen yourself or in conversations with others or you've, you know about? Can I tell a story? Sure. So <laughs> it's your um, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need, I need a validation. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, was being picked up somewhere, uh, and I'm going to keep this vague, but by the head of a denomination. Uh, and so we were getting in the car first time I had ever met the guy. Uh, he reached into the back seat. He was in the front seat. I was in the back seat. He reached into the back seat to shake my hand, introduce himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he doesn't look me in the eye, but looks at my hand. Okay. Uh, you know, looking, looking for looking that for ring. Looking for the ring, yeah. yeah. And he goes, you married? For, uh, first conversation we've ever had. You married? I said, no, 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 I'm not. Uh, he goes, you dating? Well, you know, I've, I've recently started seeing somebody. Uh, well, you should get married. You should get married immediately. And it was like, oh, <laughs> wow. my goodness. Uh, well, th- thank you for the advice. Yeah. Person <laughs> Completely that I've unsolicited. Heard, yeah, <laughs> a person that I've heard of before, but I'm just meeting. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and so I, 
I think the church unintentionally can communicate that, uh, oh, you're single, you must struggle with loneliness. The answer to that loneliness is for you to get married. Right. And um, they, I don't know if they would come out and say that, uh, uh, church members. Some obviously would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, I think that's a, a pitfall that, oh, my goodness, this, is f- this marriage piece is for everybody in the church. Right. I think it's for a good portion of the church, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's for everybody. Right. So that, that's, that's one pitfall. Or at least at one level, it may not be for that person at this point in their life. Sure. Right. That, that to assume that in that, in that story, to assume that it would be the best course of action for you to get married quickly to a person that maybe you've just started seeing, or maybe there are issues in your own personal life that would be better addressed as a single person before you commit to a lifelong covenant relationship with another person who's a sinner. So to even assume that that it's the best for that person right now, mm-hmm. maybe it's not. Yeah, and some ways uh, that I think the church can really minister well to singles is uh, to, to when preparing sermons, when preparing teaching, think about the different... Uh, demographics in, mm-hmm. in the midst of the church um, as it relates to uh, people with parents, uh, or excuse me, people with children, uh, people with grandchildren, uh, people who are unmarried, uh, and and be intentional about tailoring application in your sermons to those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also in, in inviting the single to be a part of things. Uh, w- one thing um, that I believe we have changed at our church is we have a church picnic every year. Yeah, and one of the things it says that they would put up there is is basically if your family's last name begins with this letter, bring this. If your family's last name begins with this letter, bring this. If your family's last name begins with this, and I always looked at that and I'm like, oh my goodness. First of all, I don't have to bring anything because <laughs> I'm just me. Right. Uh, but but second of all, where do I fit in? Am I am right. I a part of this? Yeah. Am I invited to the picnic, or sure. do, do I have to have do I have to procreate in order to be invited? You know that was, <laughs> yeah. and so that was something sure. I was able to to pass on to yeah. our leadership, and I I believe they just changed it to if your last name is right. This, you know, yeah. Let me cycle back for a minute to the to the preaching piece and the application piece. Um, I think that this is, in one sense, a specific way of talking about a larger principle. But when it comes to application and preaching, I think that one of the ways that preachers can grow in that area, and this applies to tailoring applications specifically to to singles, is you have to know people in those categories, right? That, That it's a lot harder to craft application for a single person if you really don't know any single people and the kinds of day-to-day experiences they have, the, the, the challenges, the joys, the, the priorities, all those sorts of things where you'd want to directly press in to their lives when it comes to applying the biblical text, if you don't know any singles well enough to have that sense, it's going to be challenging. And that's true of uh, maybe the widow or the mm-hmm. retiree or the young mom. So it's not necessarily specific to singles, but I do think in our context where the family becomes such a uh, point of emphasis 
when it comes to not just teaching, but even in thinking about, okay, let's talk about application. The first stop for many pastors ends up being, what does this mean for you as a husband or a wife? What does Mm -hmm. this mean for you as a parent? What does this mean for you? Then they move on typically to the, um, maybe the workforce or maybe as a student in school, but rarely, I think in a lot of contexts, is there a direct. So if you're a single, you know, how does this directly impact you uh, in, in terms of applying the biblical text? So I think that that's one one place where I, I've tried to be an advocate in various contexts to try to say, um, let's not forget there is this significant demographic that often feels neglected or overlooked or ignored, not just in terms of application from the pulpit, but even in other contexts, if you so structure your church around family, mm-hmm. that takes a good thing and actually becomes problematic for these individuals who are single or uh, just don't feel like they fit into that structure. Yes. Uh, I I would add, um, and, and these are all conversations I think we have had with uh, the church that we go to, the pastoral staff there, mm-hmm. so, so I don't feel guilty sharing any of this or no. like I'm... I'm letting our pastor new know no new things and, Correct. and struggles. That our we pastors have. have heard all of these things from both of us at some yes. point. Uh, one of uh, one of one of the things that that happened in our church was uh, we had, we had had a missionary who had been praying for a spouse for years, uh, and the Lord uh, eventually blessed him with a spouse, and mm-hmm. you know pray, praise the Lord for that answered prayer, right? Yeah. Um, but it was it was. It was brought up in service as, oh my goodness, so and so basically has been on this desert island, you know, <laughs> right. nearing death for for years, right. and and all yeah. of a sudden, you know, this this spouse has come to him, and it has been this life draft. That, and I'm exaggerating, obviously, but right. um, and that that caused six or seven of us in church that are that are single to just kind of find one another after the service. Like, was that weird? Yeah, that felt weird, <laughs> right? And so we right. we did go to um, our pastoral staff and like, hey, this was communicated. And they were like, oh, oh, yep, that makes sense. Yep, yeah, absolutely. I think one other uh, way that, uh, well, actually, let me frame it as a question: what are <clears throat> what 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 are some ways that your experience in the church has uh, as a single? Um, been a good thing in that, uh, like, how how have you, what are some things that have been done to make you feel wrapped into, not just the life of the, of the, of the church as a whole, so to speak, but even within any sort of family context? Yeah, uh, a few things come to mind. Um, I think the cure to loneliness is actually community in the church. Mm-hmm. And so I've experienced that, and that's that's been a a, a piece of, of my own even fighting of sin in my life has been being in homes of people or being with friends, whether it be yourself or I, I lived with another family from mm-hmm. my church when I was in seminary, uh, who whoever it may be have have invited me and made me a part of things. Uh, and I will say, as a single person, it is fun to join in the weekly things that happen at a family. What becomes mundane. I imagine to uh, the husband yeah. and wife tandem is exhilarating <laughs> for the single person. Uh, I remember I, I lived with a family and uh, when I was in seminary, named the Clothiers, 
and I went out and they now live in Pennsylvania. I visited them in Pennsylvania and just saying, let me take, let me take, uh, let me take the girls to the store or let me take them to school mm-hmm. was, was an exhilarating thing. And uh, right. being hit in the back of the head with Cheerios as I'm driving down the road uh, was, you know, yeah. th- those things become very exciting yeah. uh, for the single person. Uh, and so th- those are ways that I, I personally have been encouraged by people in the church just um, allowing me to be a part of everyday uh, everyday life. So that, I think that gets after your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I think for those who are listening who are married or uh, have families, uh, I think there can be a—I think we would both encourage you to look— out for and find ways to uh, bring singles into your family experience. And it can be as simple as having them over for a meal. It can be as simple as, hey, um, little Johnny's playing in his youth basketball game. Why don't you come join us and then maybe we'll go grab dinner before or go for ice cream after or something like that. Um, You know, obviously holidays potentially can be an opportunity where that uh, spe- specifically comes into play if a if a person who is single lives quite a distance maybe from their parents or from their family to be proactive about inviting them. Hey, why don't you come over to our house for Thanksgiving di- dinner? Or why don't you come over for Christmas and and spend the day with us since you're so far away from your from your family? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Both excellent things. Well, we need to wrap this discussion up, but uh, what are some, uh, any suggestions in terms of reading where maybe both for the individual who is single, but also uh, these can be helpful things for people who are married and ministry Absolutely. leaders to read to help uh, help them understand the experiences of being single in the church and in our culture. Yeah, so uh, Sam Alberry had a book come out, I believe, last year uh, called Seven Myths About Singleness, Um, which was originally a Gospel Coalition uh, 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 breakout session that he did. And the audio is actually free uh, online. So I'll I'll post the link to that if you'd rather listen. I think the book is more developed and and a little bit more worked out. Uh, And then I came across uh, another book a few years ago uh, by um, maybe one of the better named individuals (laughs) of our time. Uh, Cutter Calloway, uh, which which I just love love Cutter Calloway. When I hear that name, I think of he sounds like an athlete, doesn't he? He does. He sounds like a golfer, and he seems like somebody who should have been in Happy Gilmore. Yeah, yeah. As a nemesis to Shooter <laughs> McGavin, he should have been like the guy who's not good as Shooter McGavin, but Cutter Calloway. What a name! Check out that hair. Oh, yeah, he's not messing around. He's got Johnny Bravo hair. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, but Cutter Calloway wrote a book, oh, goodness, it's probably two years old now, called Breaking the Marriage Idol. Mm-hmm. And while, why I, while I don't agree with everything he says in here, yeah. I think he, he makes some keen cultural observations about society and those sorts of things and how we have sure. made uh, uh, marriage an idol. And yeah. I, I found his work helpful. Yeah, and maybe, maybe at some point in the podcast we'll cycle back around and talk about Marriage I think as a so. sort of you know not a counterbalance, but as a we we certainly don't want to give the impression of well marriage really isn't a big deal or it's not that important or it's not valuable or sure. it's not a good thing. So, uh, but we got to move on to uh, our athlete 
and we uh, have some disagreement. I don't know about disagreement. Um, so episode five, episode five, and got to go so, with number five. Yeah, I mean, so a shout out to our, you know, relatively sizable contingent in the in the great state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Braxton Miller, a recent uh, wearer of number five, obviously mm-hmm. not on the same historical significance as others we're about to talk about, but. Uh, Certainly a very dynamic player on Incredibly the field. dynamic yeah. athlete. Um, so why don't you just go ahead and, uh, and, and, and make your case? So I'm from the great state of New York and uh, from Long Island specifically. And on Long Island, there's a baseball team known as the <laughs> New York Mets. Uh, for the last 13 years, uh, the captain, well, not the captain, he became captain in, I think, 2013. But... Uh, the captain for that team has been, and kind of the kind of the figurehead, sort of the the poster boy for that team has been David Wright. Okay, wore number five, played third base, uh, went to the NLCS in uh, two thousand and six, mm-hmm. lost to the Cardinals, that I believe went on to win the World Series. Uh, was was also uh, also grew up a Mets fan, living in Norfolk, Virginia, where his father was a police officer. Okay. Um, Mets AAA affiliate was there at one time. And so he grew up rooting for the Mets and then got drafted by the Mets, which is All a right. heartwarming story. Um, <laughs> in, uh, in 2014, he got diagnosed with a spinal injury uh, that became a, a daily struggle. And he was able to play in 2015 38, 39 games, something like that, mm-hmm. and led the Mets to uh, the World Series, ultimately losing. Um, in, in five games, but he is my choice uh, for number five. Okay. So um, when it comes to other significant number fives, uh, obviously uh, we've talked about this. In the in the single digits, you're getting into a good number of Yankees. Because uh, and, and, they have retired every single digit number. Right. Yes. So at one level, I think we at least have to acknowledge – Jolt and Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio is huge. And uh, not even just on the sort of baseball front, but even as a cultural icon, Mm -hmm. he he was a really big deal. Yes. So, uh, but in the interest of not picking our third Yankee this early, um, it's it's something I I don't think we we can go with. And quite frankly, uh, the fact that we're picking a third New York athlete is part of what's my, my hesitation, but uh, let me just say my other. Okay, I think okay. the other contender. I'd say, if 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 the choice were left solely to me, and it's not because it's not just my podcast. Uh, Johnny Bench, he was great, an amazing amazing the, catcher. The great yes. catcher for the Big Red Machine was uh, in the seventies would be a historically significant figure. So, but uh, out of out of deference to my good friend. Uh, we can go with and David frankly, Wright. Frankly, let's be honest. We're not going to have that many Mets that we name podcast episodes after. Fair enough. Because there's not that many good Fair enough. Mets. Fair yes. enough. So we got to end with our one thing we like this week. You want to go first? or Yeah, this morning was announced that Hamilton the Musical is about to be a movie produced by Disney. Uh, okay. They recorded a live performance, goodness, three, four years ago, uh, and have now uh, sold the rights to that movie now that people have stopped watching Hamilton or tickets have become affordable, they're going to sure. make the movie and make a whole bunch more money. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's my one thing. Gotcha. Mine was the uh, meal I had at the Cottage Bar up in uh, Grand Rapids. Had a fantastic burger up there on Saturday. And 
uh, I'll just point out that uh, I did not partake in any alcoholic beverages while there. But mm. uh, so just to clarify, it was a, a lunch date with my lovely wife on her birthday. And uh, that the burger that I had was apparently voted by USA Today the best burger in the state of Michigan. Really? Now, I haven't sampled enough burgers in the state of Michigan to, to weigh in. But it was a very good. I wouldn't say it was as good as an Oak and Alley burger. Oh man! But it's uh, that was my that was my next question. Yeah, it was just a just a step below. It's all about the quality of the beef you use. Yeah, that, that really is is the key there. So, in any case, uh, this has been a a strange episode in some ways. We 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 have definitely lived up to our name. Yeah, we have gone all over the place. And sundry podcast, and so uh, we have accomplished what we claim to do every week and covering our various and sundry topics so until next time the lord bless y'all real good later later